On Israel's 70th anniversary, President Trump moves the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. We talk about the left's view of Mother's Day, and America's comedians begin to wake up. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. So it's a magnificent day over in Israel where President Trump was not present, but Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, uh, a bunch of senators, uh, a huge contingent from the United States is over in Jerusalem celebrating the movement of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That was something that was supposed to happen circa 1995, but various presidents had put it up. Trump finally does not. We'll talk about all of that, the implications, the riots that are happening on the border of Israel. First, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at Birch Gold. So right now, the economy is doing really well. Thank God. That's wonderful. And the dollar is very strong, which also is wonderful. But there's always volatility in the market, and this is why you should be hedging some of your bets. I mean, anytime things are going really well, you should at least have some of your money in precious metals because you just never know when the government starts to inflate the currency or when there's a bit of volatility in the market, and it's good to have that hedge. That's why Birch Gold Group is there. They have a long-standing track record of continued success, thousands of satisfied clients, countless five-star reviews, and A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You can contact Birch Gold Group right now to request a free information kit on physical precious metals. It's a comprehensive 16-page kit revealing how gold and silver can protect your savings, how you can legally move your IRA or 401k out of risky stocks and bonds or into a precious metals IRA. To get that no-cost, no-obligation kit, go to birchgold.com slash Ben. That's birchgold.com slash Ben. Use that slash Ben so they know that we sent you. I have some of my money in precious metals, and I use the folks over at Birch Gold Group for that. Birch Gold Group is the place to go when you're interested in investing in precious metals. Again, you know, the government is in control of the levels of currency in circulation. That's always a little bit dangerous, which is why you should at least put some of your money in precious metals. That's what Birch Gold Group is for. Use that slash Ben to let them know that we sent you. Okay, so... The big story of the day, obviously, is that President Trump, the Trump administration, they have now moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. They, uh, they unveiled this giant seal, this beautiful seal. Uh, Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, they were both there. They both spoke. Benjamin Netanyahu spoke at this. President Trump did not attend, but he sent a message from abroad. Here's what it looked like when President Trump paid homage to the new embassy in Jerusalem. Today, we officially opened the United States Embassy in Jerusalem. Congratulations. It's been a long time coming. Israel is a sovereign nation with the right, like every other sovereign nation, to determine its own capital. Yet for many years, we failed to acknowledge the obvious, the plain reality that Israel's capital is Jerusalem. And we extend a hand in friendship to Israel, the Palestinians, and to all of their neighbors. May there be peace. May God bless this embassy. May God bless all who serve there. And may God bless the United States of America. Okay, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the Prime Minister of Israel, he also spoke and was very grateful, obviously, to President Trump for making this move. Again, this had been approved by Congress as early as 1995. So for 23 years, okay, it has been the law of the land in the United States that the, com that the embassy was supposed to move to Jerusalem. Clinton chickened out, George W. Bush chickened out, Barack Obama chickened out, Donald Trump did not. And finally, the embassy was, in fact, moved to Jerusalem, which is just a recognition of simple facts. The only reason anyone cares about Jerusalem or has ever cared about Jerusalem is because the Jews cared about Jerusalem first. Here is Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, talking about it. We have no better friends in the world. You stand for Israel and you stand for Jerusalem. Thank you. What a glorious day. Remember this moment. This is history. President Trump, by recognizing history, you have made history. 
And that obviously is true. Look, it's an emotional moment for anyone who is Jewish, honestly, like anyone who cares about Judaism, anyone who's Christian and cares about the New Testament, anybody who cares about the history of Jerusalem, this should be an emotional, historic moment because the reality is that the, fil the fulfillment of Jewish control over Jerusalem was achieved in 1967. The fulfillment of the creation or recreation of a Jewish state in Israel was fulfilled in 1948. But the recognition by the United States that this is the reality puts to bed this idiotic myth that somehow Jerusalem was not Jewish. Okay, there, there's an old Talmudic story uh, about a bunch of rabbis who in the aftermath of the destruction of the, sec the second temple, there are two temples in the history of Judaism. The first temple was destroyed in 587 BCE, and then it was rebuilt just a few decades later. And then the second temple was destroyed in 70 and has never been rebuilt. That was destroyed in 70 CE, 70 AD. There's a story from the Talmud about these rabbis who visited the site of the destruction of the temple. All these are very, very famous rabbis in Jewish law, Rabban Gamliel, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, uh, Rabbi Joshua, and Rabbi Akiva. And uh, they, there's a story about them going up to Jerusalem right after the destruction of the second temple. And they reached Mount Scopus and they tore their garments. And when they reached the temple mount, they saw a fox emerging from the place of the Holy of Holies, uh, the Kodesh Kedoshim, the, the, uh, the place where they used to have the Ark of the Covenant. And the other rabbis started, started weeping and Rabbi Akiva started laughing. This is from the Talmud. And they said to him, why are you laughing? He said, well, why are you weeping? And they said to him, well, a place so holy that it is said to have the stranger that approaches it shall die. And now foxes traverse it. Why shouldn't we weep? And he said to them, here's why I laugh. For it is written, I shall have bear witness for me, faithful witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerabakiah. Now, what is the connection between Uriah and Zechariah? Uriah and Zechariah. Uriah was at the time of the first temple. Zechariah was at the time of the second temple. But the Torah makes Zechariah's prophecy dependent on Uriah's prophecy. With Uriah, it's written, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. With Zechariah, it is written, old men and women shall yet sit in the streets of Jerusalem. As long as Uriah's prophecy has not been fulfilled, I fear that Zechariah's prophecy may not be fulfilled either. But now that Uriah's prophecy has been fulfilled, it is certain that Zechariah's prophecy will be fulfilled. In other words, there is a prophecy that the temple would be destroyed. You can't have the prophecy of the temple being rebuilt until the temple has been destroyed. With these words, they replied to him, Akiva, you have consoled us. Akiva, you have consoled us. One of the most famous stories in all of Talmudic lore. Because the center of Judaism has always been Jerusalem. The center of Judeo-Christian tradition from where it sprang has always been Jerusalem. According to the Bible, the first mention of Jerusalem actually comes in Genesis 14, 18, when Abraham meets the king of Shalem. And then in Genesis 20, 22, 14, Abraham names the site of his near sacrifice of Isaac Yare, and that those at the same place. You put those together, Yare and Shalem is Yerushalayim, which means Jerusalem. This is the site of David's Tower. It's the site of Solomon's Temple. It's the city of Hezekiah's water tunnels. If you've never been to Israel, if you've never been to Jerusalem, it's just an amazing experience. You are walking the streets that existed for a thousand years before Jesus was walking the earth. I mean, it's amazing. These are the streets that Jesus walked, if you're a Christian. And for a Jew, these are the streets that were walked by, that were trod by Solomon. Right? It's an unbelievable experience. Think of the oldest thing that you know of in the United States. The oldest thing that you know of in the United States is probably from about 1620. Okay, now go back 2,600 years, okay? And you are talking about the stuff that you're finding in Israel. Jerusalem was the eternal Jewish dream. It is the eternal Jewish dream. The dream of a free nation living in a land promised by God. The same dream as we have in the United States is the dream of Israel. It was the dream of Bar Kokhba who revolted against the Romans in 132 CE, 60 years after the destruction of the second temple and actually used Roman coinage to mint his own. He took Roman coins. You can buy these online. It's really cool. Okay, he actually took Roman coins and he beat the Roman coins to get rid of the logo on the Roman coins. And then over it, he put the logo of the Jewish temple with the words for the freedom of Jerusalem. This is the dream of millions of Jews over thousands of years. Jews pray thrice daily, okay, three times a day. We pray for the restoration of Jerusalem. It was the dream of Mordechai Anilevich, who's the leader of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, who wrote at the end of his life, uh, right before his murder by the Nazis, the dream of my life has risen to become fact. 
Jewish armed resistance and revenge are facts. I've been a witness to the magnificent heroic fighting of Jewish men in battle. I, I helped write the autobiography, the memoirs uh, of a Holocaust survivor. This Holocaust survivor went through Auschwitz. He's actually Ella Wiesel's cousin. He went through Auschwitz and he went through Theresienstadt. And after the war, he went to Israel. He actually had a visa to the United States. He turned down the visa to the United States to go to Israel. He walked off the boat. They handed him a gun. They sent him to the front lines of Latrun, which is one of the bloodiest battles in Israeli history. And he helped establish the state of Israel doing behind the lines work. Okay, the fact that Israel even exists is a miracle. The fact that Jerusalem is in Israeli hands is a miracle. The fact that Jerusalem is an open city where you can worship as you choose is a miracle. Okay, that's only because the Jews are in charge of Jerusalem. President Trump's decision is not just a spiritually resonant one, it's a wise one politically. Because there was never going to be a deal between Israel and its enemies until we recognize some basic facts on the ground. Israel is not leaving Jerusalem. The Jews are not leaving Jerusalem. They never have. They never will. There's been continuous Jewish presence in Jerusalem literally since the inception of Jerusalem as a Jewish city in the book of Joshua. The notion that there was ever a time when Jews did not live in Jerusalem or when it was important for reasons that were non-Jewish to begin is idiotic. Islam only built the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount specifically for the same reason that they build mosques on top of other holy sites. They knew it was a Jewish holy site. They built a dome on top of it. Doesn't mean the dome should be destroyed, obviously, but it does mean that to pretend that Islam somehow predated Judaism in this area is historically ignorant and ridiculous. Judaism, obviously, is the foundation stone for Christianity as well. Anyone who loves history, anyone who loves the Judeo-Christian heritage of the West has to understand the importance of recognizing that heritage, and that begins with the word on the, on the stones of Jerusalem. Okay? History exists and truth exists. Okay? When, when Jews sat and mourned and they said, if I forget Jerusalem, May I forget my right hand? May my right hand forget its cunning? Hey, they didn't. They meant it. They meant it. If you've never been to Jerusalem, honestly, everybody should take a trip to Jerusalem. It's an amazing thing. Hey, Jerusalem has not been forgotten and it will not be forgotten. The Jews that were nearly wiped off the planet are now in control of the holiest site in Judaism. The tears have indeed turned to laughter. In the Talmud, it says eternity refers to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is eternal. The God who made it is eternal as well. And good for President Trump for recognizing a basic human truth. Good for President Trump for recognizing the fact that the Jews belong in Jerusalem and Jerusalem belongs to the Jews. To pretend anything else is historically ignorant. Now, the press are historically ignorant. Not only are they historically ignorant, it's hard not to call the press anti-Semitic in the way that they cover these, these stories. So at the same time, they're initiating the movement of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Hamas has initiated all of these riots, all of this violence on the border of Gaza. Now, Gaza is in complete control of Hamas. Okay, Gaza is run by Palestinians. It is not run by the Israelis. Israel has nothing to say except for border control about what happens in the Gaza Strip. It is a hellhole. It is a hellhole because Hamas is a terrorist group that cares a lot more about murdering Jews than it does about making the lives of its own citizens better. If, there were, if, if anyone wanted peace in the Palestinian Authority or Hamas, it would happen immediately. If they just said, listen, we are now done with all the violence. We're finished. Now we want to build up our society. Let's open it up. Everything would be open tomorrow. That's not what's happening. If you've seen the headlines today, a lot of the headlines from the press are all about, you know, 41 Palestinians killed in clashes with Israel. Okay, Israel is not clashing with the Palestinians. What is happening is that Hamas is delegating. They are sending a bunch of terrorists to the border in an attempt to breach the border. It's pretty amazing. I'll, I'll show the proof of it to you in just one second. And, uh, and I'll talk about some of the media coverage, which is just egregious uh, of, this, of the embassy move. It's, it's astonishing how bad the media coverage is and demonstrates where their heads are at. But first, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at Texture. So if you're listening to this podcast, you are addicted to information. I am addicted to information. That's why I talk so fast, because I'm trying to get you the most information in the shortest possible time. But when you are not listening, you need to actually be reading. And the way that you do that 
is you go to Texture. So Texture is the only app that offers unlimited access to over 200 top magazines, including People, The Atlantic, Time, Vanity Fair, New Yorker. You're talking about the best reporting, the best long-form reporting in the country, and you have access to all of it through Texture. Ronan Farrow is breaking stories on a daily basis over at The New Yorker. Instead of you having to pay for an issue of The New Yorker every month, instead you can get their, all their back issues and you can get access to their new issues with Texture. Okay, this is true for The Atlantic and Time and Vanity Fair. With Texture, you get unlimited access to those 200 top magazines and their back issues in a single app. Anytime you want to explore one, you can. And if you sign up right now at texture.com slash Ben, you get a seven-day free trial. So texture.com slash Ben. Try it free for seven days. See if you like it. I promise you will. To start that free trial, again, go to texture.com slash Ben to start reading the latest issues of your favorite magazines today. And the list is really long, so you should go over to Texture and check it out because it really is everything from your favorite sports magazines, your favorite workout magazines, all of it is there. Texture.com slash Ben. Use that slash Ben so they know that we sent you and get that seven-day free trial. Okay, so now, onto the media coverage about the situation in Jerusalem. So quickly, before I talk about the media coverage in Jerusalem, there's a headline from the New York Times. The New York Times is egregiously anti-Israel. They've been egregiously anti-Israel as long as I've been alive and probably longer. And there's an amazing headline. It says, from David Halbfinger. Okay, and he writes, Israel feels pride, but senses peril as U.S. moves embassy. And, they, and they're talking about how it's, it's really it's really dangerous time for Israel, and people are really nervous about Israel. Okay, here's what it actually looks like in Israel. Okay, I need to show you this tape of what it looks like in Israel right now on Machane Yehuda. This is clip nine. Yeah, clearly people there are very torn about the situation in Israel on the 70th anniversary of its independence. Okay, literally, literally thousands of people cheering in the streets of Machane Yehuda. Machane Yehuda is uh, the biggest marketplace uh, in Jerusalem. It's this street. That is completely filled. And look, that is so typical of Israel, right? You see Orthodox Jews, and then if you see in the background there, you see an Israeli flag mixed with a gay flag. Okay, Israel is a pretty diverse place, pretty amazing diverse place. Uh, if you haven't visited, you really should. I keep saying that, but it really is true. Um, I was married there. My wife is Israeli. Uh, her family is Israeli. Last time we were there, actually, is about 10 years ago. Well, we're going to have to do a trip, I think. I think we're going to have to take a trip to Israel and bring some of my listeners along, because I think that would be just a blast. But the coverage of the situation in the Gaza Strip is totally incredible and totally biased against Israel. So here is the headline from the Washington Post. Okay, headline from the Washington Post. Israelis killed dozens of Palestinians in Gaza protesting U.S. embassy move to Jerusalem. Well, if you just read that headline, you might assume that Israelis are killing protesters about the U.S. embassy, that people are just protesting in the streets, they're a little upset, and Israel's going out there and slaughtering the Hamas. That is not what is happening. What is happening is Hamas has sent 40,000 people to the border with Israel. They're attempting to walk across the border. They're sending kites that are on fire across the border in an attempt to start brush fires in Israel. They're throwing Molotov cocktails at soldiers. They're throwing rocks at soldiers. They're hiding behind women and children to do so because this is what Hamas does because they are a terrorist group. So that Washington Post story is headlined, Israelis kill dozens of Palestinians in Gaza protesting U.S. embassy move to Jerusalem. This is in the article itself. While some said they would abide by official calls to keep the demonstrations peaceful, others talked about their enthusiasm to break into Israel and wreak havoc. We are excited to storm and get inside, said 23-year-old Mohammed Mansoura. When asked what he would do inside Israel, he said, whatever is possible, to kill, throw stones. Does that sound a lot like a bunch of peaceful protesters at the border? No, it doesn't. Because they aren't a bunch of peaceful protesters at the border. It's a bunch of people trying to invade Israel, and Israel is repelling that. And by the way, I have the evidence that Israel isn't wholesale slaughtering people. The evidence is that Israel has complete ground and air superiority. If they wanted to wholesale slaughter 40,000 people, they would. They've killed like 40 people who are attacking the border. I have more headlines from the Gaza Strip in just one second. So here they are. Okay, so this is from the Jerusalem Post. Some 35,000 Palestinians were reported by the IDF 
as taking part in violent protests at 12 different locations along the fence. Throwing stones, explosive devices, and Molotov cocktails at the fence and IDF troops, burning tires and other burning objects with the intention of setting fires in Israeli territory. By the way, the burning of the tires is creating enormous environmental havoc in the Gaza Strip itself. A bunch of Palestinians are, are sick because of all of this. The Jerusalem Post witnessed at least six incendiary kites with two setting fires to fields near Kibbutz Nahal Oz. So you know, really, in, really using the power of inventiveness are, are the Palestinians under the control of Hamas sending kites laden with fire over the border. You know, could invent stuff or he could set a kite on fire and try to kill some Jews. The IDF thwarted an attempted terror attack on Monday when three armed Palestinians laid an explosive device near Rafah on the Gaza-Israel border. Uh, IDF spokesman Brigadier General Ronan Manalis, he said in an interview to Army Radio, quote, Hamas is paying family to go to the fence protest with Iranian money. We have intelligence that Hamas operatives plan to use the protest to harm and even abduct soldiers. They're trying to kidnap Israeli soldiers. The whole point of this, obviously, is to draw attention away from the situation with the embassy and to provide exactly the sort of media coverage you saw all day today with the split screens of Israelis celebrating and Palestinians suffering. Oh, it's so rough for the Palestinians. It is rough for the Palestinians because they keep electing terrorist groups. When you keep electing the Palestinian Authority and Islamic Jihad and Hamas to positions of power, it turns out you're going to live in a hellhole. When you keep allowing your government to delegate terrorists to the border, it turns out that the people on the other side of that border may not be too happy with you. But again, the, the way the media cover this as though it is, it is totally Israel's fault. Another element of this. Okay, so there was a lot of talk yesterday about clashes on the Temple Mount on Jerusalem Day. So Jerusalem Day is the day when Israel liberated Jerusalem uh, from the rule of the Jordanians. It was, in fact, a liberation. It was a liberation because suddenly all of these sites were open to Jews and Christians and Muslims alike. Okay, the Temple Mount, however, it was handed over to the control of the Islamic Waqf. So that evil, horrible Israeli government, you know, the Islamophobic Israeli government, handed over control of the holiest site in the history of Judaism to the Muslims. Okay, it is not Jews who are in control of the day-to-day on top of the Islamic on top of the Temple Mount. Instead, they handed it over to the control of the Islamic Waqf which prevents Jews like me from going up on the Temple Mount and praying. You know, I'm literally barred. If I were to go to Israel tomorrow, and if I were to walk up on the Temple Mount, I am barred from praying. If I took out a sitter, I can do it anywhere else in the world, literally anywhere else on the planet except for Islamic countries, which would punish me for being Jewish. Anywhere in America, I could pull out a psalm book. Okay, That's what a Tehillim book is. And I would just pull it out and start praying. If I did that on the Temple Mount, I will be arrested. And that's exactly what happened yesterday. Okay, According to eyewitnesses, this is Ynet, Jews entered the holy site and they were singing. The Arabs were calling out Allahu Akbar. Police forces that arrived at the scene had to separate the warring sides and remove the Jews from the Temple Mount. I'm sorry, it's not a warring side for Jews to go up in the holiest site in Judaism and say thank you to God. But this is illegal in Israel. The Jerusalem police said several Jewish visitors broke the rules of conduct and created provocation. This is how sensitive Israel is to the concerns of the Islamic population living in Israel. They're so sensitive to those concerns that Jews are not allowed to pray on the Temple Mount for fear of provoking Muslims. Okay, this is actual anti, like honestly, if this were, if this were done in Saudi Arabia, you'd call it anti-Semitic policy. The idea that Jews are not allowed to pray on a historically Jewish surface because it might tick off Muslims. But this has been the record of, of Muslims in the region, radical Muslims in the region. Uh, for, for quite a long time. This is why when everyone tries to draw moral equivalence between what Israel is doing uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem and what Israel is doing in Israel and what Hamas is doing in the Gaza Strip or what the Palestinian Authority are doing or what even the Islamic Waqf is doing, it's just insane. It's just insane and ridiculous. But again, none of this is, is designed to be objective media coverage. All of it is designed to pretend that Israel is the aggressor in a conflict in which Israel is clearly not the aggressor. Israel is clearly, clearly not the aggressor 
in this conflict. It never was the aggressor. Israel accepted the deal in 1947 from the UN. It was attacked by Arab states. Israel in 1956 was blockaded from the Suez Canal, and they, and they won that war too. In 1967, there was a preemptive attack that was launched by Israel as all of its borders were, were, were about to be attacked by Islamic countries. In 1973, there was an attack on Yom Kippur, the, the most holy day in Judaism, and uh, it, very, it came very near to wiping out the state of Israel. In 1982, Lebanon was using Hezbollah in order to, in order to strike at Israel. Israel has constantly been in defensive war since its inception, and the media keep covering it as though Israel is the aggressor. In the same way, they cover America as though America is the aggressor, which shows that the leftism of the American media and the international media expands to its hatred for the state of Israel. They hate the state of Israel because Israel is an outpost of the West. They don't hate the West because the West backs Israel. Okay. Meanwhile, yesterday was, was Mother's Day, to switch topics, and um, I, uh, I couldn't help myself. One of the things that I find absolutely just appalling and astonishing on a regular basis is the amazing, amazing silliness of, uh, of the left when it comes to sacred times in our, in our national calendar. I'm going to explain that in just a second. First, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at Keep. So you're probably losing your hair. Okay, dudes, you're probably losing your hair. Chances are you are. You're probably not paying attention to it, even if you're young. But if you look at your dad, if your dad has lost his hair, you're probably going to lose your hair as well. So that is why it is necessary for you to talk to my friends over at Keeps. Hey, there is a real solution to hair loss, but you have to do it now. You can't, you can't wait until all the hair falls out and then you say you're going to get some miracle grow and sprinkle it on your head. That ain't going to work. There are two clinically proven medications that let you keep your hair, and now they are inexpensive and easy to get. You don't need to lose your hair if you don't want to, which is why Keeps exists. For five minutes now and just one buck a day, you'll never have to worry about hair loss again. Getting started with Keeps is really easy. So you sign up, and it takes less than five minutes. Just answer a few questions, snap some photos. I've done this. A licensed doctor remotely reviews your information, recommends the right treatment for you, all without ever leaving your couch. They offer generic versions over at Keeps of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. You probably tried them before. You never got them this easy for this price. Keeps is only 10 bucks to 35 bucks a month, and now you can get your first month for free. That's a pretty great deal for getting to keep your hair longer. So go over to keeps.com slash Ben. You get your first month of treatment for free. Keeps.com slash Ben, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Ben. Again, these are the same medications your doctor would be prescribing, except now you can do it from the comfort of your own home, and it's a lot cheaper. Go to keeps.com slash Ben. That's K-E-E-P-S, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Ben. Use that slash Ben to keep your hair. Okay, so... I have some great news that I'm excited to share with you right now, okay? This is, this is news that I'm breaking right now. We are finally taking the Ben Shapiro show in front of a live audience, which is just awesome. Are you excited? Are you excited? You should be because it's going to be awesome. This August, I'm going to be doing my podcast live in Dallas and Phoenix, and you will be able to see me in person and join me in an audience Q&A. And we'll be also doing a special VIP event beforehand with a signing and a meet and greet for 200 super fans. So I can't wait to see you. Visit dailywire.com slash events for more information. Here's the best part. If you're a premium subscriber, you can get tickets pre-sale starting tomorrow morning Tuesday, May 15th, 10 a.m. in every time zone. So check it out. Tuesday, May 15th, 10 a.m. in every time zone. If you're a subscriber, you can be the first person to buy a VIP ticket, a regular ticket. If you aren't a subscriber, well, then you should subscribe, people. And you should get a beautiful Leftist Tears tumbler and get early access to tickets. But you have to hurry because this is only going to last until 10 p.m. on Thursday, May 17th. Once again, visit dailywire.com slash events to get your pre-sale tickets and additional info. Okay, so go check that out. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to see you out there. Become a subscriber, okay? It's really totally worth it. There's just one reason why you should do it. Okay, so meanwhile, yesterday was Mother's Day. And Mother's Day is always a weird time if you're on the left. I have to imagine it's kind of a weird time if you're on the left because the left likes to proclaim that they love Mother's Day. Oh, I'm going to go out for mimosas with mom for brunch for Mother's Day. Okay, here's one of the things that's weird about leftist patterns of thought. So a lot of folks on the left, 
they like to proclaim that certain things in America are sacrosanct. Parenthood, children, apple pie, mothers. But then when it comes to their actual ideology, they're kind of anti a lot of those things. So when it comes to mothers, for example, mothers are seen as stooges of the patriarchy by a lot of radical feminists. If you are a woman and you choose to stay home and mother your children, this makes you a bad person. You are a lesser person. You've been sucked into the maw of the patriarchy that has chewed you up and spit you out and suggested that you must indeed be a woman barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen rather than running companies, rather than having a job. Okay, if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're a bad person, according to a lot of folks on the left. But then when it comes to Mother's Day, like, oh, Mother's Day. I love Mother's Day. You can't have it both ways. If you think mothers are rubes, then you can't, you can't celebrate Mother's Day. Plus, you got a bunch of folks on the left, I would say the majority of the left now, that suggests that a child doesn't need a mother. Now, I believe a child does need a mother. A child needs a mother and a father. And this is why I always tweet out on Mother's Day, happy, parent, happy legal guardian of unspecified gender day. Because if you are on the left, this is what you believe. You believe that you can have a legal guardian of any gender whatsoever. You can have a mother who's a father, a father who's a mother, a mother who used to be a father, a father who used to be a mother who used to be a chicken. Any of these things are possible. So why not just call it legal guardian of unspecified gender day? But no, then the left gets mad when you say this because it shows that they're really not super pro-mom as a general rule. You know, the whole we're in favor of abortion and we think that women are stupid if they stay home with their kids. And also a child doesn't need a mother. A child brought up by wolves or any other family arrangement is totally fine. Mowgli had it best. You know, all of this. And then they say we love Mother's Day. Okay, you can't, again, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that you hold certain things sacrosanct when you clearly do not hold them sacrosanct. Yeah, the same thing is true of the innocence of children. The same people who will say you have to protect innocent children from video games. You have to protect innocent children from the predations of their church-going parents. These are the same people who say that a four-year-old should be seeing a psychiatrist to get hormone treatment to prevent puberty. Right? And these are the same folks. Okay, so anyway, I tweeted some of this stuff out yesterday, and a lot of people on the left got very, very mad. Okay, a lot of people said, how could I just ruin Mother's Day by pointing out that a lot of folks on the left don't really have a reason to celebrate Mother's Day. Okay, and then I did something even worse yesterday. I did something even worse on Mother's Day. So I asked my, th this is actually a funny story. So yesterday morning, I woke up, and my, my daughter woke me up. I went in there to her room, gave her a big hug. And she said, what day is it today? I said, well, it's Sunday and it's Mother's Day. We're going to do some special stuff for mommy. Isn't that fun? And she said, yeah. And then I said, sweetheart, you're, when you grow up, you can, you're going to have a job and you're also going to be a mommy. Which one of those things do you think is probably going to be more fun? And she said, being a mommy so I can cuddle my babies, which is really cute. Right? Clearly, she's a victim of the patriarchy because if she knew best, she would know that working a long 2,200 billable hours a year job as an associate of law firm is significantly more fun than cuddling babies. Clearly, she would know this. By the way, I would assume that if I ask my son this when he's old enough not to be pooping in his diapers, if I ask him this, I assume he'll give me the same answer because being a dad is super fun. We need more parents, male and female, who are interested in raising their children rather than making their career first priority. That would be great. You know, My career is very, very important to me. I think that every, every day I get up and I'm eager to go to work, but I'm even more eager to spend time with my kids. I probably spend more time with my kids at this point than my wife does because she's in medical residency. As, as I may have mentioned once or twice, she's a doctor. So anyway, I tweeted this out. I tweeted out, I asked my four-year-old this morning whether she thought it'd be more fun to have a job or be a mommy. She said, to be a mommy so I can cuddle my babies. Clearly, she has already been victimized by the patriarchy. And I said, I would begin teaching her in order to countermand the demands of the patriarchy. I'd begin teaching her that babies are made out of thorns and hatred and that she can work as an executive at Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And that will somehow make it all better. A bunch of people on the left got really mad. Number one, they misinterpreted the tweet to assume that what I was saying is that she could either have a job or be a mommy. Which, yes, that's me all over. 
Right. I'm the guy who says women can't have jobs, except for how my mom worked and my dad stayed at home and my wife works and I stay at home. Except for all of that, you got me spot on. Spot on. I'm the guy who forces my wife to be a doctor. Yes. Clearly, you've, 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 you've pegged me correctly, leftists. And people on the left got very angry, though, because if you point out a very simple truth, hey, that little girls want to be mommies, they get so mad. They get so angry. If you say little girls naturally want to be mommies and have babies of their own, no, no. That is a gender construct. That is something that you had to teach them. Never mind hundreds of thousands of years of human biology. Never mind all of animal kingdom biology. Never mind any of that stuff. It was clearly that five guys got in a room several thousand years ago and they said, we have to convince women it's good to have babies. We have to convince them of this. Now, we should also never mind all the fact that all these, all these feminist women hit the age of 40 and they start freezing their eggs because they're afraid they're not going to be able to have kids. We should, not be a, we, we, should, we should ignore the fact that a lot of women turn around at age 35 after having been told that they could have everything, the, the career and the, and the children, and think, man, I wish that I had spent a little more time at home. We should ignore all of those things. Instead, we should, we should pretend that all of this is, is a, a construct that is unnatural for women to want babies. Girls want babies. Little girls want to have babies. Okay, when my daughter plays games, my daughter's games, she was doing it last night. There's a giant Barney that we have at our house, a giant Barney doll that we have at our house. My daughter made a bed for her giant Barney. And then she said, my giant Barney is sick and I want to take care of my giant Barney, Barney because he is my baby. My son takes a bat and hits the giant Barney. Okay, they are different children because boys are not the same as girls. Okay, this is so stupid. But if you acknowledge this, then it's somehow bad. But here's the problem. If you don't acknowledge this, then why are you celebrating Mother's Day? Okay, if you're not pretending that it's innate to women to want to be mothers, if you're not, if you're not suggesting that women have something special to offer in the realm of parenthood, then why are we celebrating Mother's Day in the first place? I love it. So Elizabeth Spires, who's a feminist idiot, she tweeted out, the fact that you framed it to her as an either-or is the problem, Ben. And, uh, and I tweeted back, well, I didn't frame it as an either-or. I, I said, which one is more fun? Okay, if I said, when you grow up, which do you think will be more fun? Going to a baseball game or going to work? I'm not suggesting that you can only go to baseball games and never go to work. I'm suggesting that there is a hierarchy of fun. And it actually is an important question. So here's the, here's the punchline. So it's really funny. I told my wife about this yesterday. We're in the car and we're driving to Disneyland with the kids. And I turned to my wife and I told her this story. And she says, oh, that's really funny. Because you know what? I asked my daughter, I asked, uh, I asked my, our daughter the same question last night. <laughs> I asked her, aren't you, did you know? This is my wife, again, the doctor, who turned to my daughter last night. And she said, Okay, this is, a, this is a, a close paraphrase. And she said, you know, mommy loves being a doctor, but mommy loves being your mommy even more than that, a lot more than that. If mommy, mommy wants to spend more time with you, okay? Is she part of the patriarchy now, my wife? This is so stupid, okay? All of this is so dumb. But the same left that wants to obliterate gender differences and then celebrate gender differences, you can't do both. Obliterate them or celebrate them. You can't obliterate them and then celebrate them. You can't pretend men and women are exactly the same with exactly the same aspirations, hopes, and dreams and then say that women are unique creatures who deserve special days like Mother's Day. All of this is just... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I love this. So dictionary.com actually tweeted out at me, fallacy, any of the various types of erroneous reasoning that render arguments logically unsound. Thank you, dictionary.com. I'm so glad that you defined fallacy for me. Intern at dictionary.com, whose life's work is to tweet out definitions written by others hundreds of years ago, you dolt. Okay, I did not say that my daughter should not get a job. I've told her, by the way, that she could be president of the United States. And you know what she, you know what she responded? She said, that sounds really boring. Can't argue. Can't argue with that. Okay, so 
I want to talk a little bit about uh, this this whole McCain apology thing in just a second. First, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. So at dailywire.com, you get the rest of this show live. And again, when you're a subscriber, you get tickets, right? You get, you're going to get your chance to get tickets. Thousands of, of people who think like you or who don't think like you, you can ask questions. It'll be great. You get to go backstage, but you can only buy your tickets early if you're a subscriber. So for $9.99 a month, get a subscription, get the annual subscription, and you get this as well, the leftist year's hot or cold tumbler. And that also allows you to ask questions in our mailbag on Fridays. Plus, it also allows you to ask questions to Michael Moles. So tomorrow, Tuesday, May 15th, 5.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Pacific. It is time for our next episode of The Conversation. Our own Michael Moles, the execrable, he is going to be answering all of your questions. I don't know what sort of answers he can give you beyond weird stories about the stuff he did in his spare time at Yale. But if you like that sort of thing, then Michael Moles can answer your questions tomorrow. Elisha Krauss will be there to keep Knowles in line, ensure that he keeps his shirt on, which is the task of half the office these days. This month's episode will stream live on Daily Wire's YouTube and Facebook pages. It's free for everyone to watch. Only subscribers can ask the questions. So go check it out. To ask questions as a subscriber, you go over to dailywire.com and then you log in and then you go over to the conversation and watch it. And then you can just start typing questions in and Michael will answer your questions as they come in for an entire hour. So subscribe to get those questions answered. Also subscribe right now because tomorrow the tickets go on sale. They're going to sell out. We know they will. So just go there and get your subscription. It ain't that expensive to get a subscription to the Daily Wire and you get those special tickets early. You get them a lot earlier than everybody else. So go check it out right now. Also, that helps us bring you the show. It helps us make sure we're bringing you great content. Yesterday, if you haven't listened to it, we brought out our Sunday special with with, uh, Dave Rubin. Our first episode was Jordan Peterson. Our second episode was Dave Rubin. And next week, we have a special guest who is just as awesome. We have a special guest every week who is just as interesting and just as awesome. Also, Please go over to Daily, go over to Apple News and uh, check out Daily Wire over at Apple News as well. We're the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast in the nation. Okay, so uh, meanwhile, there's a big hubbub that has risen over John McCain. So John McCain is unfortunately extremely sick, uh, and he is likely to pass away sometime in the next few months. He has brain cancer. Uh, and it's it's really sad. Whatever you think of John McCain, John McCain is, is I think, uh, I mean, there's no question he's an American patriot. I mean, the man suffered horrific torture and then served for decades in the Senate trying to do what he thought was was right. I disagree with him on a lot of politics, everything from campaign finance reform, Medicaid Part D. I, I, agree, I, I disagree with him on, on many, many policies. I thought that his 2008 run for the presidency was lackluster. None of that has to do with who he is as a patriot and his contributions to the country. Okay, so... There was a big story that broke late last week, bad for the Trump administration. There's a woman named, uh, named Sadler who apparently in some meeting, her name is Kelly Sadler, and she apparently in a meeting at the White House was asked about the fact that McCain was going to vote against Gina Haspel. Gina Haspel is, of course, Donald Trump's nominee for CIA, uh, to head the CIA. And apparently during the meeting, she joked that somebody was going to, that, that, that who cares, he's going to die anyway. Right? And then this leaked. So there are two issues here, okay? Issue here, number one is what she said, and issue number two is the leak. So what she said is obviously horrible, right? It's a horrible joke, clearly. And that raises some questions about the people in the room because we've all been in meetings where somebody is making horrible jokes, but we all know where the lines are, right? So we have meetings here at this office where people are making dumb, horrible jokes, but there's certain jokes that you won't make even among your friends because they're just too egregious and just too yucky. This is a joke that you wouldn't make among your friends. Okay, well, you know, John McCain is going to die soon. It's just, yuck. You don't make a joke about a dying man, particularly not a patriot. And, um, and so obviously that's, that's pretty terrible. And it says something about the people in the room that this sort of went unnoticed or un, unremarked upon. Uh, and apparently no one chided her or that she felt comfortable enough to say it in the first place suggests that 
Maybe people at the White House say some stuff that they shouldn't be saying on a pretty regular basis, but that's not a shock. I mean, Donald Trump said in the middle of the campaign that John McCain was not a war hero because he'd been captured. So it says something about the, the moral fish rotting from the head when it comes to bad, saying bad stuff about others. And then there's the question of the leak. So people on the right who have been pointing out that it is not good that the administration leaks this much, they've been, they've been shellacked over the weekend. How, wh- why are you so worried about who leaks the Sadler conversation? Why aren't you more worried about what she said? I can be worried about both. I can talk about the moral lack in saying that John McCain's going to die soon. But I can also worry about the fact that this is a White House so leaky that the way that you take down your political opponents, who supposedly are working for the same goals that you are, is to leak the nasty stuff that they said in a conversation. There's a certain level of trust that has to exist in any office environment. You know this. You work in an office. I work in an office. There's a certain level of trust. And the truth is that people make what would widely be construed as inappropriate jokes all the time. Now, this may be beyond the pale inappropriate, but how many inappropriate jokes do we make a day here at the Daily Office? A thousand? I mean, a lot of inappropriate jokes. I'm not talking racist jokes or anything, but I'm talking about jokes that if you printed them in the pages of the New York Times, people go, ooh, that's weird. Why would they make that joke? Okay, that, that, that sort of stuff happens all the time at offices all around the country. And it would be kind of bad for your business if it turned out that every time somebody made a joke that would read a lot worse than it would speak, then that would sort of make the front pages of the New York Times bad for your business. And the, John Mulaney has a, a comedy special where he talks specifically about this, where apparently one of his friends was uh, it, one of his friends was in trouble with with the law because somebody ha- was testifying against them uh, in in a civil case. And John Mulaney wrote a, a funny email back that said something like, "It's something like, want me to kill them for you." Right? It's a joke. And then he jokes about the fact that if that had been read in court, that would be a real problem for him, right? Because suddenly it would be read in court that John Mulaney wanted to kill somebody. That sort of stuff happens at your business every day. I think this falls under that category, meaning it's something bad that was said. But now it's being turned into a national issue. Now, obviously, the proper solution to this is for Kelly Sadler to come out and say, I shouldn't have said it. Obviously, I, it, was a, it was a poor joke. I never should have said anything like this. Instead, it's, instead, because the White House has a habit of never backing down, never apologizing, she continues not to apologize publicly for this, even though she called up Meghan McCain and apologized privately. Bernie Sanders was asking why the White House won't apologize to McCain. I do have a theory. And Jake, it is beyond my comprehension. Uh, It is one thing in the White House for somebody to say something crude and stupid and disrespectful of an American hero. It is another thing for them not to apologize. So it is beyond my comprehension. And I just don't know what goes on in that White House mentality uh, for there not being an apology for that terrible remark. Okay, so... Bernie Sanders, you know, it, he, he says that the people in the White House should obviously apologize. The reason that the people in the White House aren't apologizing is because they have a basic rule. Never compromise, never apologize. Never apologize because they're just going to bang you over the head about it. Now, I don't think that rule is actually true. I don't think it's true that if you just came forward and you said, yep, never should have said it, you'd take a flack for about a day and then it would be done. But I understand the tendency on the part of some people in the White House, that tendency to say, listen, I'm not going to bend over backwards in order to apologize to people who are just going to shellack me for it anyway, who are just going to crush me for it anyway. I know that's Donald Trump's tendency, and he's been very successful with it. In this particular case, it seems to me that Sadler should just come forward and apologize. That said, I think anybody who is found to have leaked this stuff to the press should be fired. If I were, if I were head of the Trump administration, I'd be firing nearly everybody in that room because you can't have a working business environment in which people are leaking like this. Okay, meanwhile, there's something weird that's beginning to happen in comedy land. So a lot of the comedians are beginning to realize that maybe the making fun of Trump thing is actually kind of counterproductive, which it is. It's so funny. The left dominance of the cultural heights, their dominance in the world of comedy, their dominance in the world of entertainment and media, 
It's made them think they're a lot more powerful than they actually are. It's why at the DNC, you saw people like Lena Dunham up there on stage, the Lena Dunham was going to swing votes of anybody who wasn't already living in big cities and, and watching girls. They, they really think that their dominance of the cultural heights means dominance of the political heights. But what you've actually seen is that Republicans in many ways are dominant to an extraordinary degree in politics and Democrats are extraordinarily dominant at the degree of culture. And this is not a coincidence. I think the dominance of Democrats in culture is driving the Republican dominance in politics. The fact that so many people around the country feel constantly derided and insulted by the media, it makes them feel like, fine, I'll just vote Republican. Fine. You're going to label me a jerk? I'm just going to go vote how you don't want me to vote anyway because I don't like you either. There's a lot of that going around. And it seems like a lot of the comedians are starting to figure this out. So Jimmy Kimmel, Pope Jimmy, uh, he has decided that America might be tired, in fact, of the bashing of Donald Trump. That maybe this has been a uh, maybe this has been a mistake. So he didn't interview uh, he, he didn't interview with uh, with the upfront. And he said sometimes there's such low hanging fruit. You have to choose between twelve jokes on one subject, and picking the right ones is something I obsess over. Then I found too that almost inevitably my best jokes come to me around three in the morning when I'm sitting there alone. But then he admitted that perhaps they have gone a little bit too far. And he says he says. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I guess you're right. Hopefully, it'll be the last upfront of the Trump era, too. So I don't know. I don't know how much focus will be on there. I think people have had an ass full of Donald Trump, and I feel like the upfront is a time to look within and make fun of ourselves. He says that he can't imagine the upfronts are going to be completely Trump-free, but he's planning on not making it his focus. He's saying that he might actually be moving beyond, uh, beyond a lot of the, uh, of the Trump stuff because people are just tired of the Donald Trump stuff. Well, the reason people are tired of the Trump stuff is because you weren't even handed about it during the Obama era. It is amazing that so many of these comedians seem to ignore the fact that Obama was an inherently funny human being as well because he was so pretentious. Donald Trump is an inherently funny being because Donald Trump is Donald Trump. But a lot of people are beginning to recognize this mistake. Saturday Night Live, they're recognizing now that political stuff is beginning to uh, get a little bit old. You like the show, right, Mom? I do, except for all the political stuff. We get it. All right, thank you very much. I remember I was in that production of The Crucible in high school. All right, yeah, you know, the crucible's a lot like the witch hunt against President Trump. Okay, don't love that, let's go. <laughs> Enough with the Trump jokes. Okay. Mom, I don't write those. And why doesn't SNL ever talk about crooked Hillary? Mom, I'm so new here, please do not do this to me. Okay, and this is exactly right. Okay, SNL may be getting, maybe, maybe the comedians are beginning to get it, which would actually be bad news for Republicans. As a Republican, yes, it's irritating to watch Michelle, what's her face? Go off at the at the White House Correspondence Center on Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Yes, watching her make abortion jokes is going. But as a conservative, you actually need more of this. What you need is more of these comedians being idiots. What you need is more of the comedians who are wildly biased to the left because it's driving people into the Republican camp. Well, good news, there's still Trevor Noah. So Trevor Noah over at Comedy Central, he says that President Trump is like an African dictator. He is just like an African dictator. He's just like Mugabe. Right, because he's seizing a lot of people's money and because he's redistributing land and probably because he's killing all of his enemies. Wait, how's he like an African dictator again? Trevor Noah, explain. I said from the very beginning that Donald Trump reminds me of an African dictator. And if you know anything about African dictators, the first thing you have to do is follow the money. And you follow the money with the people closest to them, family members, business associates. All you do is watch for the money. And I would have been disappointed had we not found out or had Michael Cohen not done this? I'm like, yeah, this is following the script. This is what you were meant to be doing as the person who rolls with Donald Trump. You were always going to be finding a way to swindle cash. One of the things that's extraordinarily galling about this, of course, is that this is Trevor Noah on CNN with Brian Stelter. One of the things that a lot of these com comic 
figures like to do is play the clown nose on, clown nose off routine. So the minute they say something controversial, they go, hey, I'm just a comedian. I can say whatever I want. Why are you taking me seriously? Hey, I'm a comic. And then Jimmy Kimmel will go out there with his sick child and talk about his sick child and use his sick child as an excuse for revamping healthcare. Or Trevor Noah will go on CNN and give his political take. Listen, you want to be both? That's fine. But you're going to get treated like a pundit. And that means that we're going to critique you like a pundit. This is idiotic. Every politician in American history of any prominence, or most of them, I would say, have had family connections with serious corruption involved. Just ask Bill's siblings. Just ask Hillary Clinton. Ask Hugh Rodham. Uh, ask the Kennedys. Uh, all of the, the, the idea that Donald Trump is like an African dictator is such a wild exaggeration, wild stupidity. No wonder people are not taking some folks on the left seriously when they look at, at folks like Trevor Noah or Jimmy Kimmel as political lights to follow. Okay, time for some things I like, things I hate, and then we'll do a Federalist paper real fast. So, Things I like, since it is, in fact, a, a celebratory day for Jerusalem, I'm going to play you the most beautiful song ever written about Jerusalem. This is a, a song called Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. So it's uh, in Hebrew. Uh, it's called Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is made of gold. Jerusalem of gold is the literal translation. Uh, and uh, the, the singer on this, I'm trying to remember her name. It's Ofra, ha Ofra Hazal? Hazal? Yeah, Ofra Hazal. She, she was in, um, you hear her voice in Prince of Egypt. She sings, the, she sings one of the parts in Prince of Egypt. This is an old tape. It's a really tragic story. I think she died of like hepatitis uh, when she was like 42 uh, through a blood transfusion. It's really terrible. But she, uh, but but this rendition of Yerushalayim Shel Zahav is quite beautiful. I use it very often when I'm chazan at my shul. Uh, so at my at my synagogue, I sometimes pray for the congregation. When I do that, this is a song that I like to use the tune of for, for the various prayers. Uh, so here is here's the song. It's just a beautiful song. <laughs> It's a, it's a beautiful song. The, the, the lyrics mean, The mountain air is clear as water, the sense of pines around is carried on the breeze of twilight and tinkling bells resound. The trees and stones there softly slumber, a dream enfolds them all. So solitary lies the city and at its heart a wall. O Jerusalem of gold and of light and of bronze, I am the lute for all your songs. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, and uh, she's actually a terrific singer, Ofra Chazah, so you should check out uh, her work online as well. Okay, time for some quick things that I hate. So Hillary Clinton uh, is uh, mad at everybody again. I mean, she's just going to go around the rest of her life being angry, which 
I think might not actually be that much of a change for her. It seems like she spent most of her life being angry at something or other. Now she's still angry at the American public and saying that they are sexist. She says, there is still a very large portion of the population that is uneasy with women in positions of leadership. And so the easiest way to kind of avoid having to look at someone on her merits is to dismiss her on her looks. Yes, I'm sure that's why you lost. It's not because you're deeply off-putting on every conceivable level. It's because people don't like the way that you look. If you're a beautiful woman, I'm sure you would have won Hillary Clinton, except for the fact that no... You know, there, there's this amazing study. It was really funny where they took the debate between the first debate between Trump and Hillary Clinton and they reversed the sexes. They had a guy read all of Hillary Clinton's lines and a woman read all of Donald Trump's lines. And then they had people evaluate the debate. They had people who were there sitting there with with the dials trying to determine who won. And it turns out that Trump as a woman won by more of a margin than Trump as a man because Hillary's personality is so off-putting that it doesn't matter whether she's a man or a woman. She's just that amount of off-putting, which is pretty amazing. Okay, other things that I hate. So Benedict Cumberbatch has now said that he's going to turn down a role unless his unless his uh, co-star is paid the same amount of money that he is. That's because internet feminists were very angry that Bryce Dallas Howard was paid $2 million less than uh, Chris Pratt was for the new Jurassic Park movie. Of course she was paid less because no one cares if Bryce Dallas Howard is in those movies. If she were, dis- if she were to disappear tomorrow and suddenly be replaced by, uh, by Jessica Chastain, like just another redhead, then no one would care, right? Would even, like, if that happened, would people even notice, really? Not that Bryce Dallas Howard isn't a good actress, but she doesn't do anything in those movies. She's not the star of the films. Chris Pratt is the star of the films. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to pay Bryce Dallas Howard to do like a great acting job, but she is not the draw of those movies. Okay, Benedict Cumberbatch, however, he's now trying to say that uh, equal pay and a place at the table are the central tenets of feminism. Look at your quotas, ask what women are being paid and say, if she's not paid the same as men, I'm not doing it. And he says that he has a new production company that is female focused. Now, I don't hate this because he is uh, because he's doing this. Good for him. That's fine. You know, but what I do hate is the implication that any man who's not doing this is somehow shortchanging women. That's ridiculous. Okay, Benedict Cumberbatch is going to have to take less pay to do this. End of story. If he actually, because no one is going to pay, he's a star of Doctor Strange. And no one is going to pay whatever random female co-star of the next Doctor Strange movie is the same amount they're going to pay Benedict Cumberbatch. Not unless Benedict Cumberbatch takes less pay. Because the reality is that if he asks for $5 million, they're not going to pay some some female lead who's going to be in one movie the same amount. Like, there is a market to this stuff. Jennifer Lawrence makes a lot of money. Women in film make a lot of money. I, I do love the people at the upper end of the income bracket complaining about income inequality. It's pretty amazing. So... Uh, if he wants to take a pay cut, good for him. That's that's well within his rights. They did that on Friends, by the way, uh, that all, all the people who are the stars of Friends, they wanted to pay some more and others less, and they got together, and I believe they, they pooled their income and said, okay, we're all going to be paid the same amount of money. That's cool. Good for Benedict Cumberbatch on that level. But again, if the implication is that Chris Pratt is doing something deeply, horribly wrong by taking more money than, than Bryce Dallas Howard, maybe she ought to get a better agent or maybe she ought to pick better scripts. Okay, time for, time for a Federalist paper real fast. So, Federalist number 28. Every week we go through a Federalist paper. We're all the way up to Federalist number 28. Alexander Hamilton writes this one. He wrote the vast majority of them. He continues with his arguments about the strength of the national government with an army under the control of the legislature. So there's a lot of debate over who should actually control the the national army. Should there be a standing army? A lot of people very afraid of this because they thought that it would suck power away from the states. And he makes one very interesting argument. He says, if the representatives of the people betray their constituents, the argument here is that we can't have the legislature control the national standing army because if we do, then this will allow the legislature to run roughshod over the state. So Alexander Hamilton writes, 
If the representatives of the people betray their constituents, there is then no resource left but in the exertion of that original right of self-defense, which is paramount to all positive forms of government, and which against the usurpations of the national rulers may be exerted with infinitely better prospect of success than against those of the rulers of an individual state. He's talking about the right to resist. Okay, so for all the people out there on the left who say that there is no inherent right to resist, there's no right to bear arms, keep and bear arms for use against the government, Alexander Hamilton is explicitly talking about that. He's talking about if the legislature were to usurp the powers of the people, the people would stand up. And the reason you want a national standing army as opposed to state standing armies is because it is actually harder to fight against a state standing army than it is to have the state to act as the go-between for a battle against the national government. In reality, that's exactly what happened during the Civil War. It was a lot bloodier because it was national, national government versus the state. But the argument here uh, is even deeper than that, and that is that you do have a natural right to resist a government that usurps your fundamental rights. And if the government does usurp your fundamental rights, that's the reason that you need to keep and bear arms as a, as a, root, as a root cause. Okay, so we'll be back here tomorrow with all of the latest. I'm Ben Shapiro. But first, sorry, before I let go, sorry, before I let go, I want to remind you, I want to remind you that if you want to get tickets, we're doing this show live. We are doing it live, and uh, we're going to do it live, like Bill O'Reilly. We're going to do it live. And we are going to do it live from Dallas and from Phoenix, and you will be there, and I will see you there. But if you want to get the tickets early, you need to go on dailywire.com right now. Please subscribe. It really helps us. And also, it means you get the tickets early, earlier than anyone else. There are only 200 VIP tickets per event. Those VIP tickets mean you get to come backstage, hang with me. It means you get pictures with me. You get a goodie bag. All sorts of awesome stuff happening backstage. And you get that if you become a subscriber and buy the tickets early. So go subscribe, dailywire.com right now. Check it out. I'm Ben Shapiro. We'll see you here tomorrow. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Mathis Glover, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens, edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Copyright forward publishing 2018. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.